Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Our next guest is Rick Doblin, who you've known for a really long time. Gee, I think I knew him when he was a kid. <laughs> might have been, <laughs> been in his 20s. He's now the president of MAPS. Uh, he's been the president and founder for a long time, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Study. And he is one of the people who is trying to get uh, psychedelics and MDMA legalized. I think uh, he single-handedly has done more to raise money for research on therapeutic applications of psychedelics, uh, to really uh, make it possible for them to become legally available for therapeutic use. I mean, he's, he has a really stunning track record and I, I can't wait to talk to him. Fantastic, let's get him on. All right. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Rick Doblin, who's the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, also known as MAPS. He received his PhD in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Rick's goal has been to develop legal context for the beneficial use of psychedelics and marijuana, primarily as prescription medicines, but also for personal growth for otherwise healthy people, and eventually to become a legally licensed psychedelic therapist. He founded MAPS in 1986 as a nonprofit organization, and he's raised over $80 million in donations for MDMA research. Welcome, Rick. Yeah, thank you. We've just raised a bunch more. So actually, we've raised over $100 million now, but it's not just for MDMA. It's for other psychedelic research and cannabis research and some public education and stuff. But yeah, we were shocked when we looked at, we have raised over $100 million, all donations without strings attached. So Rick, I must say that when we're all done with the podcast, I would like a lesson in fundraising from you. <laughs> well, it, it has to do with collaborations. Yes, yes. So psychedelics are getting a lot of mainstream media attention these days and a lot of money. So just as an example, some recent headlines in the New York Times, psychedelic therapist draws veterans to jungle retreats. In courts, Wall Street donors are racing to back psychedelic therapy. And in the Wall Street Journal, Silicon Valley and Wall Street elites pour money into psychedelic research. I guess you've gotten some of that. <laughs> yes, yes. That was our article in the Wall Street Journal about that's uh, completing a 30 million fundraise. Yeah. And the, the other thing to say is that there's a company called Compass, a for-profit company that's developing psilocybin. They're talking about going public and they're putting their valuation at over half a billion dollars. And there's another company called the uh, MindMed, the first one that was on the stock market. They're talking about somewhere like 125 million valuation without hardly having done anything. Well, that may also be corporate America. I'd love to hear from each of you the story of how you met. And I'm going to start with Andy. <laughs> well, I'm not, I, I don't know that I remember, but uh, actually, uh, just but coincidentally, yesterday in the mail, I received um, a card and a photograph from Alyssa Carlino, who was the daughter of Lou Carlino, a filmmaker uh, who Rick and I both know, who was early interested in psychedelics. And the photo is of a conference at Esalen, which looks like, I mean, from the state of my beard, which is quite black, <laughs> uh, I think this is somewhere either in the 
like 1982 or something like that. And I'm pretty sure you're in that photo, Rick. And my my memory is that, that we met at a, one of those early psychedelic conferences at Esalen. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, th- I think it was 84. And I remember you camping out in a tent you had. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, yeah, it, it was this... Um, sort of gathering of those people that had been caring about psychedelics, gathered by uh, Dick Price, who was one of the co-founders of Esalen, and Stan Groff and others, to sort out a lot about MDMA as sort of a new legal substance that we could um, share with others. And, And we had a brief period of time. We knew that it was doomed because both it was being called, um, Adam as an underground psychedelic therapy drug, it wasn't illegal, but it was also being sold as ecstasy. And that was being done in public settings. And it was clear that during Nancy Reagan and Just Say No, an escalation of the drug war, that we only had a limited time where it was still going to be legal. And so these meetings at Esalen were absolutely you know, essential to, to building this new community and, and organizing us so that once the DEA did move in the summer of 84 to criminalize MDMA, we were prepared. And I went to DC and um, we had 30 day public comment period. and. Actually, it was uh, through you, Andy, that through Rick Cotton, that you had friendship from Harvard with a lawyer who was part of a big Washington, D.C. law firm, and they agreed to uh, represent us pro bono. I forgot that. that (laughs) That was the only way that we could do this. We had this big D.C. law firm working for free to help us sue the DEA. Rick, in your phase three trial, you have been doing this MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, and I'd really love for you to explain to our listeners what that looks like. What, what happens when someone comes in and has this experience? Well, first off, we felt because of the stigma of psychedelics that we needed to work with the hardest cases. So we work with chronic, severe PTSD. In phase two, everybody was treatment-resistant. Right now, we don't require require treatment resistant, but almost everybody is. So the program itself is three and a half months long. And and the reason I preface this by saying that we work the hardest cases is that the treatment for people with milder PTSD might be shorter. During this three and a half month process, there's two therapists. Male, female is the standard model, but there can be two women, two men, two non-gender non-binary people, but but the idea is that um, a lot of people who are traumatized are resilient and do recover. But often those people who are traumatized and don't recover and tip into PTSD have had um, childhood trauma. Not always the case, but, but often. So we feel like this kind of uh, two-person male-female team enhances the efficacy and provides additional safety as well. So in the three and a half month process, there are th- only three times they get MDMA once a month, and it's eight-hour-long sessions. And there's 12 90-minute non-drug psychotherapy sessions, three before the first MDMA to build the therapeutic alliance and for preparation, and then three of these integrative sessions after each MDMA session for you know, continuing the therapeutic process. And then because we are concerned, people might say, oh, it's a psychedelic afterglow, you know, but it's going to fade. And we know that ketamine for depression often does fade, that we have our primary outcome measures two months after the last experimental session. And then we also do a 12-month follow-up, which is more for insurance companies to try to demonstrate that it's durable 
and to look at healthcare utilization, things like that. So the, the treatment manual that we have up on our website, if anybody wanted to look at our treatment method, we've manualized it. And so you just go to the MAPS website, maps.org, and it's um, under research, under MDMA, the bottom of the page. But it's basically something that we've learned from um, Stan Groff, who's our uh, mentor. It's very similar to the approach with LSD therapy. And the idea is that there's nothing really structured during these eight hours. It's not like at hour one, you have to talk about your trauma. At hour two, you have to talk about your family. We believe that there's this inner healing mechanism. We know, we all that know that. sounds familiar. <laughs> totally the case. We all know that's the case for our bodies, but we believe our psyches have something like that. We call it the inner healing intelligence. You could say it's a hypothesis, but what it means is that we, we call our therapy inner-directed therapy. We don't use the word guide. We're not the guide. We don't know the territory. We don't know the memories. We don't know the experiences that people have had. So we have this trust that what emerges is in some sort of an order that the people need, that this inner brings to the surface and that they can handle it. And so it's the opposite of trying to suppress symptoms that a lot of psychiatric medicines do. So when people have memories of trauma, often if it's too painful, they, they, it comes through the body. So this is a very like mind-body treatment. And then as you work to let it exaggerate or, or, or to let it really open to it, a lot of times body things turn into a story and then the story will turn into emotional release or, or shaking or fear or, or things like that. We do have this belief that from our perspective from therapy, let's say somebody recovers a memory of childhood sexual abuse, whether it really happened or not, whether it's symbolic or, or something else, doesn't seem, it, it's not our primary concern. Our primary concern is helping that to be expressed and experienced. So it's actually, maybe people think that because MDMA has been called ecstasy, that you take it in a therapeutic setting and all of a sudden you feel great and your problems are all gone. And it's not that way at all. Many of our subjects have said, I don't know why they call this ecstasy because they're shaking, they're, they're crying, they're struggling with things that have been difficult, that have been, they haven't wanted to recognize it, and that they've never really been able to fully process. So I, I think a good way for people to understand it, it's like grief. You can hold in grief for a very long time. If you can release it, then you can move through it. Um, Stan has said something that I think is very wise. He said, the full expression of an emotion is the funeral pyre of that emotion. That, that everything changes. And if you can fully express it, it will move to something else. So if you feel like you're trapped in eternity in the hell in this kind of horrific situation, the solution is not to run away from it. It's just to accept that. And then if you fully accept it, then something will change. So in the there's a fundamental difference between the um, work with classic psychedelics, like with LSD or psilocybin, and the work with MDMA. So we play music. We have people with eye shades on and headphones on. And for MDMA, around half the time, half the eight hours, people are having their own inner imaginal experiences. And it, it's very metaphorical. It's, it's just incredible, the stories that are wrapped up in these healing processes of what they're experiencing. And around half the time people are 
having these kind of inner experiences with their eyes closed, listening to the music, the other half of the time they're speaking to the therapists. With LSD or psilocybin, it's more like you know, 80, 90% of the time they're having an internal experience and they're then speaking with the therapist. Now, we also know that with the LSD and psilocybin research, it's been widely reported in multiple different studies starting in the 60s and the current studies that there seems to be a correlation between the depth of the mystical experience of this unit of experience being part of something bigger, being part of this, this whole and therapeutic outcomes. And we use the same questionnaire, the mystical experience questionnaire in our MDMA research. And what we have discovered is people score surprisingly high on the mystical experience questionnaire, but there's no correlation between the depth of the mystical experience and healing from PTSD. So what we do is we just support people as whatever is emerging. I mean, a lot of times the therapists are sort of sitting there meditating, but not with their eyes closed. They're trying to look at body signals and body language and is the person open to it or not? What, whatever's happening, how they're dealing, they'll check in every 45 minutes or an hour just to see how the person is doing. But so there's a lot of this um, inner work and then uh, a lot of this um, dialogue with the therapists. Rick referred to the classical psychedelics, LSD and psilocybin, and many people would say that MDMA is not a classical psychedelic. It's chemically related to one family of psychedelics, the, the phenethylamines, but it's a unique agent. And uh, it's been called an empathogen uh, because of this remarkable potential to create empathy uh, between people and put people in touch with feelings. Uh, I wonder how you feel about that, Rick. Would you, um, how would you define it? Yeah. Well, well, the, the word psychedelic was uh, developed to mean mind manifesting. So, you know, when you run a nonprofit too, you don't want to limit yourself by definition. So we have the broadest definition of psychedelic. Um, I, I fully agree that MDMA is not like a classic psychedelic. One way to understand it is actually in 1953, the U.S. Army Chemical Warfare Service looking for mind control drugs, tested eight drugs for toxicity. And on one side was mescaline and the other was methamphetamine and MDMA was in the middle. So mescaline is the drug that's the, the classic psychedelic that's most like MDMA. And so it's different from methamphetamine in that um, you get the alerting properties of methamphetamine, but you can sit still, you can meditate. And it's got some of the flow into consciousness, the mind manifesting properties of mescaline, but it doesn't have much in the way of uh, classic eagle dissolution or, or visualizations. So I think that empathogen and tactogen, those words were developed when we were trying to, um, you know, sue the DEA and block them from criminalizing it and trying to say that it was a different class. It wasn't a real psychedelic and therefore it shouldn't be seen that way. But, but I think those are good words, and tactogen and pathogen. But I, I, I like to define psychedelic as its original meaning, mind manifesting, and holotropic breathwork or breathwork exercises can be psychedelic. Meditation can be psychedelic in certain ways. So I, I don't think it's that crucial to quibble on the terminology, but I, I, like, I don't like hallucinogen and I don't like entheogen. Uh, the, you know, entheogen is too positive, hallucinogen is too negative. Psychedelic is more neutral, but it's got all this kind of cultural baggage. But the cultural baggage has mostly been falling away. Andy, 
You have often talked about the great importance of set and setting when somebody uh, takes any kind of medication, actually. What do you think about the set and setting that uh, Rick just described for this therapeutic use of MDMA? Well, I think that yeah, it's all important that the, the, the expectations of the person taking the substance and the setting in which it's taken. So I think that um, the model that's been created for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy works very well. It's producing the outcomes that we want. Uh, there's two examples that I often give about how important these non-pharmacological variables are with psychedelics. Uh, one is that in 1960, before anyone had really heard about any of these substances, most people had never heard of LSD, I knew several people who were dosed with LSD at a party without their knowledge. When they felt the effects of the drug, they interpreted them as the onset of food poisoning. And just recently, a few months ago, a paper appeared, a science journal titled The Placebo Effect at Psychedelics Tripping on Nothing, in which a group of subjects were given psilocybin and, and a placebo. And in the placebo group, the percentage of people who had psychedelic effects was 61%. So there's enormous room for expectation setting to modify pharmacology. And here you have, you know, with MDMA, this is an agent that has tremendous potential um, if it's used in the right way. I, I, I feel sorry for people who have only taken this in parties with loud noise and combining it with alcohol and other substances. I think they're likely to miss out on a lot of the positive potential. And for people who have a history of trauma, I think to be able to use it in this therapeutic setting is marvelous. Yeah, we have some really interesting information about the placebo effect as well. So we have permission from FDA for a protocol where we can give therapists MDMA as part of their training. It's a four-day protocol, um, double-blind placebo-controlled crossover, meaning that the first day you either get placebo or MDMA, then you have a day of integration, then the third day you get whatever you didn't get on the first day, and then the fourth day is another day of integration. And the therapists who participate, we've had over 90 participate in this already. They've previously um, done like a 14-hour online course, and they've also participated in a week-long course in person watching videotapes of therapy sessions. So we've had this only happen twice, but both times it was two psychiatrists who'd never done psychedelics before. And it was with, uh, we had two, um, both actually husband-wife teams, Michael and Andy Midhofer and, and Marcelo Talar and Bruce Poulter, who are the trainers. They're extremely experienced. So on the first day of this four-day for these two psychiatrists, early on, they were really thrilled that they had gotten the MDMA. And they did this tremendous processing of childhood trauma and other issues with their relationships. And it, it was really deep and profound. And um, the next day, they did a lot of integration. And we do ask the uh, therapists and patients to guess what they think they got. And so they all said that they had gotten the MDMA. And not only that, but the, our trainers said that they had gotten the MDMA. And then on the third day, when they were all expecting to get a placebo, it turned out that that was the MDMA. One of the psychiatrists was so shocked that he was wrong like that, that he couldn't speak for about three hours. Um, and what they both said afterwards, though, is that watching all the videotapes of the therapy sessions and knowing what MDMA did and being hungry for that kind of healing, 
that they were able to will themselves into a state that was like that. But they also said that the actual MDMA was deeper, more profound, and they were able to do even deeper work with it so that they could see that you can, you can will yourself into this in, um, in a very deep and profound way. It's, it's shocking, but it doesn't mean that the drug does nothing. No, of course. As, as this psychedelic renaissance unfolds, I think a, a critical need is that we need people who are trained to be guides, whether they call them therapists or guides. And, uh, you know, I'm pleased to see, I think MAPS is one of the organizations that's offering trainings of this sort, but there's going to be a tremendous need for people who are trained in, and also have personal experience with these substances and know how to work with set and setting to get the maximum benefit. Yeah, because the treatment is not the drug. Uh, you could take MDMA and end up worse off, particularly if you try to take it in a setting where difficult emotion comes up, you try to stuff the feelings down, and you could be worse off for months or years afterwards. So, the, the, yeah, one of the key uh, scaling factors is training therapists. And our, our, our current model, what we're hoping to do is by 2030, have trained 20,000 therapists. Well, I'm going to say this is an area we should partner because a lot of our trainees in integrative medicine are really interested in developing skills along these lines. And we have been very uh, much pioneers in developing online trainings that can scale. So, Rick, all of this is predicated on the assumption that uh, these substances will be made legally available for therapy. And at the moment, they're all in Schedule 1 uh, under the U.S. Uh, Controlled Substances Act which is they're defined as having high abuse potential and no therapeutic potential. So how is it going to get out? How is all this going to get out of Schedule 1? What do you see happening? Well, um, since 1992, the FDA has really been science over politics. Now, most recently, very recently, Trump has been trying to politicize uh, the FDA, the CDC, which is very worrisome. But I think because we have um, prior agreements with FDA because we actually have support from a lot of, uh, or not a lot, but some Trump supporters. So the only way to get out is to really go through the regulatory process through the FDA or through the European Medicines Agency. And the FDA has declared MDMA for PTSD a breakthrough therapy. The FDA has declared psilocybin for uh, treatment-resistant depression a breakthrough therapy. They've declared um, psilocybin a breakthrough therapy for major depressive disorder. Uh, Compass Pathways that I just said, uh, saying their value is over half a billion dollars. They've got, uh, they're very well funded. They've raised uh, somewhere like 150 million in cash from investors. So I think that what we need to do is the clinical trials to develop these drugs through the regulatory agencies. And I think that likely that will, the data will be evaluated honestly. I don't think it's uh, gonna be a repeat of the backlash from the 60s. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of support from veterans. Just for an example, um, you know, Trump is very big on veterans. The Navy SEAL Foundation contacted me a few days ago, and they've uh, changed their uh, board of directors have changed their regulations, and they can now fund research, not just evidence-based treatments. And they're interested in funding psychedelic research because they know about a lot of Navy SEALs are using Ibogaine and MDMA and psilocybin. So we are now um, about a month away from having the data from a first of two phase three studies as far as whether it's statistically significant. And Rick, what does it mean to be defined as a breakthrough therapy? 
Well, big pharma wants to have um, breakthrough therapy because if you get that designation, it's the most important designation that FDA can give for the most promising drugs. Two thirds of applications from big pharma are rejected. What it means is you get more meetings and shorter timelines are placed on the review process for going through the regulatory system and that they are almost partnering with you to try to help you succeed. Now, the FDA has only declared two drugs, breakthrough drugs for PTSD. One is MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, which is a drug therapy combination. The other was a drug called Tanmaya, which was a repurposed sleeping pill from 30 years ago by Tonics Pharmaceuticals. So they were also breakthrough therapy in phase three, and they had their interim analysis in February, and they were told that they should stop the study for futility. So just because you have been designated a breakthrough therapy doesn't mean it's going to work. It just means that the preliminary data was promising. And but how does that affect its scheduling status? Uh, well, if we get the FDA to say that there is um, safe and effective use of MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD, the DEA must reschedule. Now, the FDA controlled substances staff and the DEA have a series of meetings along with the sponsor providing what's called an eight-factor analysis of abuse liability. And they'll um, come up with a recommendation for what schedule it should be in. But it will either go to schedule two, schedule three, or even potentially schedule four. But it will always be scheduled. And, and one of the things that I think makes it easy on the FDA um, and the DEA is that the drug is not the treatment. It's drug-assisted psychotherapy. So it's only going to be administered by trained therapists only under direct supervision. So it's never a take-home medicine. It's not like here's five doses of MDMA take home and you know you do it with your friends or whatever. So I think the rescheduling will take place. If FDA says yes, the DEA must reschedule. The other thing is that states have to reschedule as well. So 25 states in America automatically reschedule if FDA and DEA do. But the other 25 states, like California, requires a separate bill from the state legislature before it can be prescribed. And most of the other 25 states are the Board of Pharmacy or some other regulatory agency like that. Very few actually require a new bill. But in Europe, where it's national healthcare systems, you have another situation is that they can reschedule, but their health systems might not decide it's cost effective and might not decide to fund it. So in the U.S., the, the whether it's fundable, whether insurance companies will cover it is independent of the scheduling decisions. In, in Europe, it's a little bit more connected, but still you can get it rescheduled and they just won't cover it and you'll have self-pay people. In. Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research, and clinical standards. During this unprecedented time managing the physical and emotional challenges of the coronavirus, the Andrew Weil Center is here to support you. The center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning, meditations, and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org slash podcast. Now, I got to take you back to something you said earlier. You talked about people having a bad experience with the MDMA. I think it's really important as we put this out into the world, the podcast out into the world, who is likely to be uh, harmed? Who should avoid MDMA experience? 
Well, I want to first off make a distinction between difficult and bad. You know, so difficult is not always bad. So it has to do again with this set and setting. So that if you're just looking at, I want to have a party, I want to have fun and difficult stuff comes up and your friends are there with you and they you don't want to talk about anything difficult, you stuff your feelings down, um, you can be you know, worse off. But the, the same time is if you're with friends that are willing to talk about it, then you can make a lot of progress. So as far as who should take it, and who shouldn't take it, um, Jeffrey Lieberman, who used to be the uh, president of the American Psychiatric Association, he's at Columbia, um, and uh, one of his psychiatrists that he works with, Elias Dockwart, they want to do a study with MDMA with schizophrenia. I think it can be integrative, but it would be done on an inpatient basis. They would be observing people. There would be longer periods. So we, we don't necessarily think it's good for bipolar disorders or uh, frank psychosis, but it, it can't, dissociative identity disorder, it can be very helpful with. But again, the, the more serious the um, psychiatric indications, other than PTSD and depression and anxiety or social anxiety, or, or we're, we're now starting a study with eating disorders, which is very fatal. So it's more about whether people are willing to feel what emerges well, and that the context is supportive. We, we do currently exclude people with uh, personality disorders, but we think it can be very helpful to people with personality disorders. They just are going to need a few more treatments. There's all of this interest in microdosing now, and um, clearly we're talking here about, let's say, full dose. What do you think about microdosing now? My general thing is that for mental conditions, I'm not very interested in microdosing because I want people to be able to be free of drugs. I think it's better to use full doses in a therapeutic context with the goal of getting to the core of the problem so that people don't need medication. You, you've worked through it. Maybe it takes several sessions. I've only heard um, very few cases of people um, microdosing MDMA, and, and not really, because microdosing means that it's below your level of perception. Andy, I know um, you've talked about the potential for uh, psychedelics. I'm not sure whether you included MDMA in your thinking, but psychedelics helping all kinds of physical symptoms. So Rick has just pointed to a lot of what we call mental health, uh, psychiatric, but I'm wondering if you could talk about your ideas about how this could help physical problems and the place in integrative medicine. You know, Victoria, I first wrote about this in The Natural Mind in 1972, and I have written about it in, in many of my other books as well. I think one of the great potentials of, of psychedelics is that they can give you uh, the possibility of interpreting uh, sensations in new ways. So, for example, if you are living with chronic pain, they can give you at least a temporary experience of what it's like to not have pain. Uh, they can change allergic responsiveness. They can change immune responsiveness. Um, so I see vast potential for them in physical medicine for changing autoimmunity, for example, for changing all sorts of chronic conditions through changing, and this is taking advantage of the mind-body connection, which as we know in integrative medicine is you know, all important and all powerful. Uh, I recount some of my own personal experiences with it that you've heard, but it, I would love if they become available for therapeutic use. I hope it will not just be for in psychiatric medicine, but in general medicine, because I think there's so much possibility there. 
Yeah, we're, we're working with some doctors who are interested in um, MDMA for fibromyalgia and also for irritable bowel syndrome. But we, we have this um, anti-patent strategy, so nobody can patent the uses of MDMA, which means making things public. And I often tell the story about, uh, Andy, how you referred a patient to me that said that uh, MDMA cured their rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, and so, <laughs> yeah, and so we, we got that story. Uh, we posted it on our website. Now nobody can patent MDMA for rheumatoid arthritis because there's prior art. They didn't invent the idea. So I think this idea of the mind-body connection, MDMA in particular, really seems to open up the mind-body connection in a great way. But we're focusing initially on the psychiatric indications because we think they're going to be more reliably demonstrable. But, um, you know, this whole thing about the placebo effect, what, what we just said is that um, one day one hopes that we will learn through meditation or through who knows what, biofeedback, how to catalyze our own placebo effect. And I think that, you know, psychedelics can play a role in us learning how to do that. So we're just at the early stages now of trying to support these independent investigators to do this uh, MDMA fibromyalgia study. They, they don't have the funding for it, but that'll be one of the first ones where we try to look at the, the physical illnesses. Rick, as you've studied people uh, with PTSD, I'm guessing some of them have physical illnesses as well. Have you heard any impressive spontaneous healing stories or have people talked about changes to their physical state? Well, yeah. Some of them have had tinnitus ringing in the ears that has um, substantially diminished. Now, whether how that's physical, again, that's kind of a physical mental thing. Um, others have had uh, traumatic brain injury, things that go down pain often goes down. We, we've had one person was in our study who was on opiates for pain. And after MDMA, he was able to get off the opiates. And, and he realized that it was not just for pain, it was for escapism. And there was one doctor that I worked with and under the influence of MDMA, his arm became paralyzed. And we knew that it wasn't really MDMA paralyzing his arm. And over the, we said, don't worry about that. We're not taking you to the hospital. You're not really paralyzed. And over the next course of a bunch of hours, what developed is that um, a story was that he and his mother and his siblings were at the um, deathbed of their father, and he was completely uh, hooked up to all sorts of machines and, and wasn't really uh, living in, in much of a way at all. And, and they had to decide whether to take him off of life support. And um, he was the one, because he was the doctor, they all decided to do that, and he wrote the order. And he said the problem was that he hated his father. And so this conflict was, did he kill his father or not? Um, and so that paralysis was a reflection of this unconscious conflict. Did he kill his father? And then over time, as he was able to share that and realize his mother, his siblings, he really thought his father did want that, even though he hated him, that he didn't really kill his father, then the arm fully healed, uh, you know, and he could move it again. Andy, I, I'd like to take us back. You have a long history of um, paying attention and to psychedelics, um, personal history with them. But I'm wondering if you could take us even further back in human history and talk about how psychedelics were used in ceremony, um, shamanic practices, uh, the cultural significance of these medicines to our ancestors, and even what do you think that they were trying to achieve? Well, that's a big question. You know, many of these... Uh... Uh, substances uh, are in plants and have been used by traditional societies, particularly in the New World. 
Um, there's only one old world psychedelic, Iboga, which was used in Africa, source of Ibogaine. But New World natives uh, really explored the plant kingdom to find plants that had these potentials and used them in various ways. In many shamanistic cultures, it was shamans who were most experienced in them, and they were in charge of ceremonial use of them. And shamans also used them in, in individually and in healing interactions with patients. So I think they were very central to um, Native American religion, uh, shamanism, medicine, as I say, particularly throughout the New World. You know, and there's the Ellicinian Mysteries from uh, 1600 BC to 396 AD that was with an LSD-like potion called Kikian that's the foundation of uh, Western Greek culture. Now, there, is, there are people who are so focused on psychedelics who see them as, who cannot imagine that people could have spiritual experiences without them, and I don't believe that. Terence McKenna has this stoned ape hypothesis um, that mushrooms were the key that caused enlargement of the human brain. I, I just don't believe that. I think that in ancient times that if people accidentally ate the psychedelic mushrooms, that would put them at a great uh, disadvantage, uh, you know, if, if there were saber-toothed tigers around. Or I think that this ordering of perception would not be a positive attribute until there was enough civilization to create safe spaces in which people could use these things ritually. I think it's very important to acknowledge that there's a lot of other ways to have spiritual experiences other than psychedelics, because then when you can say, look, this psychedelic is releasing something that's naturally inside. It's not a distorted psychedelic experience. You can get to it many ways. It's part of our makeup. But but Andy, when um, Victoria wanted to take you way back, um, I wasn't sure where she was going, but I, I'd like to take you back to 1972. Yes. So, in 1972, I was uh, 18 years old. That's when I first read Stan Groff's uh, Realms of the Human Unconscious and decided to devote myself to psychedelics. And that's also when you published The Natural Mind. And so I'm wondering, that was after the backlash, after the Controlled Substance Act of 1970, psychedelic research was being wiped out around the world. So I'm wondering, what did you think then about how long it would take or if it would ever come back or, or what were your senses <laughs> about that? I think it's, it seemed to me to be very far off in the future, that there was just so much fear around these, these agents. And also, this was a time of great, like now, great political turmoil in the country. And uh, a lot of the polarization was between, was with the counterculture uh, that used different substances from the dominant culture. You know, instead of using alcohol, they were using cannabis and psychedelics. And uh, that really became a symbol of other people that the dominant culture was very much afraid of. So it just seemed to me that it would be a long, long time. And I must say that I'm both uh, incredibly pleased and surprised to see how fast this uh, revolution is, is coming now and how much uh, psychedelics have penetrated mainstream culture. You say fast, but I just want to say that, you know, uh, my understanding is that, Rick, you have devoted uh, more than 30 years of your life to carry out the science that will ultimately influence the FDA. And I know that we're close, but I want to acknowledge your devotion because this is a life's work. Well, you know, I, I think also when you're looking into the future, it seems like it goes on forever. But but now that we're both 50 years older from 1970, <laughs> or, or 48 years older, um, it doesn't seem like that long of a time. 
I mean, you know, cultural change happens slow. So to, to happen in a space of 48 years where we're both alive to watch this psychedelic renaissance, you know, it, it just takes people in groups a while to to grow up to certain things or to integrate certain things. And so, yeah, I didn't know how long it would take either, but it, it, it felt to me like it didn't matter how long it took because the psychedelic mystical experience in particular, because I decided this before I even knew about MDMA, that this sense of connection with everything, that that was the antidote to um, genocide and the antidote to prejudice and uh, destruction and, and destruction of nature. So it didn't matter how long it took. And, you know, one of the things that I'm most proud of that MAPS has done in our entire um, history is that we managed to start LSD research in Switzerland a few months before Albert Hoffman died. And also before Anita, his wife died, she died a few months before he did. But but he could see the glimmerings that it, there was this sort of cycle that was coming back. And, and he could see that. Thank you so very much for taking the time uh, to have this conversation with Andy and me. I think that it is going to be of great interest to our listeners. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And, and I, I'm just so great to be, so happy to be on this with, with you and Andy, too, just because of what we were talking about, these meetings at Essel and, you know, when it looked like, and it was, that MDMA was doomed and was, you know, becoming criminalized. And now after all these years to see it coming back, in a way that I think, um, well, what, what I think is that the, the work of integrative medicine that you guys have pioneered and also mindfulness, you know, that they have become more mainstream. And it's building on that and building on the mainstreaming of yoga and the mainstreaming of, of you know, meditation that we can now layer in psychedelics. So much of what happened during the 60s, culture was not prepared for it at all. And in many, many different ways, the work of integrative medicine, the, the work of, uh, you know, meditation and yoga has prepared the ground for bringing psychedelics back now. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's so great to do this with you, Andy. Thank you so much. All right. Bye for now. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. Learn more about topics featured on the Body of Wonder podcast and how to apply them to your everyday health with My Wellness Coach, a free mobile app from the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Download today at mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu. That's mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu.